Welcome back to Experience by Design podcast, where we explore experience designs of all kinds. I'm your host for this week, Gary David. Here at Experience Design, we thought that this might be a good week for a little musical interlude. We spent the past number of weeks exploring some topics of, uh, how can we say this, pretty important substance in terms of healthcare disparities and outcomes, mental health needs, and criminal justice reform. Now, that's obviously quite the list, quite an important list, but after a while, quite frankly, things can get a little heavy and we all need some palate cleansing. And not that this week's important, not that this week's topic isn't important, I should say. In fact, you might argue that it is essential to our viewing experiences. Whether we're watching a movie, streaming a show, turning into a sporting event, or sporting highlights, music is an integral part of what we experience and how we experience it. And I'm kind of imagining right now we're all doing a little bit more movie watching, show streaming, well, and no sport watching unless you're watching highlights, but even there, you can probably hear some music in it. So how is music selected, and how does it get incorporated into what we watch in the first place? I mean, I don't know if you've ever wondered about that, but when you're watching these shows, you do have music that's there. And if you didn't, well, that would be a big gap. That would be something that we might not even notice it being present until it's gone. And it does raise the question of how does the vibe of the show, or sport, or movie, or anything else, how does that vibe relate to different kinds of music? And then what would happen if you had the wrong music pairing for a wrong show? And so there is this kind of needle we have to thread in terms of what show goes with what music and vice versa. What sport goes with what music and vice versa. And what happens if we miss that mark to the overall you know, experience we have with this thing? How does it shape and mold when not only what it is we see, but what it, how we become emotionally attached to it. And how do we become connected to that moment that we're watching it? So this week's visitor to the Experience Design Studio is Gio Lamonico, who is the, a coordinator, not the coordinator, there's more than one, but a coordinator of music and media licensing at Viacom. And this is kind of a fun episode for me because I first met Gio way back in 2013 when he was an undergraduate student of mine at Bentley University. And, that, you know, it's a long time ago. And as you do this job longer, uh, it does feel like a longer and longer time ago that you see students who now have careers. And he was in a course that I taught that was on the sociology of sports. After that course, he approached me to do a directed study for an internship that he had at CBS Sports where his job was to find the right music to go with the right sport highlight. When he told me about this internship, I really couldn't quite understand it. You know, that his job was literally to watch sports highlights and then figure out what kind of music would go with that highlight. I mean, it just seemed too good to be true, and I was really intrigued. And it's interesting to see that now, this internship that he had in 2013, and that directed study, which I still have the paper on, has turned into a career in music and media licensing at Viacom where his job is to not only help find music for shows, but also to help those artists whose music it is that's being used get paid for its use. So there's a whole licensing component of tracking whose music's getting used, how much it's going to cost, is it in budget, and how to connect it all together. It's this whole world that just exists under the surface of our viewing experience. And again, if you don't think it's essential, just imagine next time you're watching your favorite show 
having that show without any musical background whatsoever. Or the wrong musical background. I mean, could you see The Sopranos with uh, country and Western music underneath it? Could you see, you know, I don't know, Moonshiners, my favorite show, one of my favorite shows. Could you see Moonshiners with uh, a hip-hop track? Or could you see it with a heavy metal track? I mean, all of these things that might seem nonsensical really is somebody thinking about and putting together. And these are actually a lot of people who are involved in thinking creatively about how music gets paired with shows for their content so that we get the experiences that we get. So it's really fun to talk about, and it was really great to catch up with Gio after quite a long time, and we were trying to get him on the show for a while, and I was glad to see it finally came together. Not only did we talk about what his job is and how music works, but I was also able to catch up with him about his life and career, how it's been going, and to learn about how music becomes part of the soundtrack to what it is that we watch. So it was a lot of fun for me to have... um, a lot of fun for Gio, if I can speak for Gio. He seemed to be having fun, who knows? Um, and I hope that you have fun listening to it as well. Oh, it's, thank uh, you for having me, man. This is I'm great. glad we're finally, we're finally, finally. I know, seriously, man. It's been a long time coming. <laughs> it's all, maybe, maybe like seven months, but who's counting? Yeah, <laughs> I'm not. How you been? I've been good, man. Not too, not too bad. Um, things have been good. I'm, I'm living in the city, working in the city, so it's, it's great. I'm having a lot of fun. Yeah, and you know, just so you know, I, I started recording, and we'll just like, kind of jump into it. But I noticed that you, your office is in Times Square. Yes, it is. Yeah, it's in the heart of Times Square, um, which is kind of cool, and it's also kind of hectic a lot of the times. Uh, especially like in the summer or like holiday season, it's, I mean, it takes me like 20 minutes just to get to the train. Cause so many people are around. It, I was, I was actually, I should have contacted you cause I was in New York recently. It was back in August for oh, a really? conference. Yeah. And, and I had to walk through times square and it was absolutely horrible. Oh my God, man. It's, it's insane. Like, so I don't know what, good? I don't know what everyone talks about how cool it is because I thought it was, um, yeah, I know. It's okay. actually, it's really funny. A lot of people, when I tell them that I work in Times Square, I get like 50-50 on the answers. Some people will be like, oh, that that uh, that's all right, whatever. And then other people will be like, oh my God, that's so amazing. Like, how do you like it? And I'm like, no, nah, it's not really as great as you think. Uh, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't think it was great. So that, that's, no, that's no. reassuring. Uh, yeah, uh, I, I mean, think in the, in the mornings, it's actually kind of cool because like I get in and there's really not that many people around. And the lights are all on and stuff, but I mean, getting out of work at like six thirty and having to bypass people is just chaotic. And the lights. I mean, as far as experiences go, I think that one with all of the stuff happening around it, I, from what I understand, it's the place where all New Yorkers avoid, if at all possible. Oh yeah, oh yeah. And I mean, it's if just I didn't have like, to work there, I probably I when I was my first job, I I worked near Columbus Circle, and I don't think I went to Times Square like more than twice in the three years that I was working up by Columbus Circle. I just avoided it at all costs. Well, I do want you to know that the, I still use your 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 internship, your directed study as the example of really? what you can do. I do. And for people who are, you know, obviously people are hopefully listening. I tell people about, I had a student one time whose internship job was to figure out what music to put with what sports highlights. Yeah, <laughs> it was a great, great internship. 
and turned out to like be a really fun job too. And they kind of look at me like, what, you know, what, I don't understand what that means. And I, I come, you know, reply, well, what if you had heavy metal guitar with someone trying to sink a putt on the 16th hole of a master's? Exactly. <laughs> and so what was that? I mean, explain a little bit more. I know what it was because I graded you. What was that job? Even though it was back in 2013 now, if you can believe it, what yeah. was that job and how, and what did it involve? So my official title, so I'll, I'll go back to the internship really. So I, I started interning at CBS Sports and it was the music department and it was a very small team. There was only two, maybe three of us there. And uh, the real focus of the job was to kind of curate music to be played over sports packages. So a lot of what they did with CBS was football. I mean, NFL was like huge in college football. So it was a lot of picking music that was going to go over, say, highlights packages or a graphics package, which is maybe just a um, kind of slate that goes up that shows stats for specific teams and um, uh, just random random facts and stuff. And then we also had bump in and bump out music. So whenever we were cutting to commercial, coming back from commercial, we would have a little bit different music that was getting played coming in and, in and out of that. So I guess specifically highlight music, at least when I was there, they wanted like driving rock, uh, more closer to the metal side, but definitely not too heavy. Uh, but, but a hundred percent something fast paced, uh, because it's highlights. I mean, you got people running around and, and you wanted it to kind of be reflective of that. Um, graphics was a little bit more, uh, mellow. We usually stuck to like hip hop beats for that. And, um, it was just kind of more because the, the whole piece was kind of more informative. And then with bumper music, we would try and find music that sounded like uh, sounded like commercial music that you would find on the radio. Uh, sometimes we actually would bump out with commercial music, uh, which could get a little dicey depending on who we were using and who we, we had a list of people that we could and couldn't use. So huh. that that um, that definitely got a little crazy sometimes uh and then it was also picking music for sports packages so i would get emails from producers or i'd get calls from producers and they would say hey i'm working on this package of jason edelman and we're doing a piece on him can you give me a list of songs that you think would go well with this and then i would give them a a, a list of that was more on the commercial music side i would give them lists of like famous bands and, and and songs that i think that would go well with the piece and then we would actually have to go out for clearance and get the songs cleared that's amazing because well, there's a lot to it. Would you consider yourself before you took this job as a, like a music aficionado or, um, or, or were you really deep into different musical styles and artists and one of those people who are like, yeah, I'm back, I'm back in the vinyl now. I mean, were you one of those people or you just kind of listened to music on the radio as it came about? No, no I was definitely, um, I wouldn't call myself an aficionado, but I was definitely listening to a lot of different music growing up. I mean, I, uh, I played, the, I was a drummer. And I learned how to play the drums at a very young age. I think I was okay. like six or seven. I was taking lessons and uh, I kind of followed that all through up until high school. I think in college, I kind of stopped. I think uh, there was a couple times where I had to play. I was a I was a backup drummer for this one band whose drummer was pretty flaky. So I would have to go in and out and, and help them with shows here and there. Um, but in terms of listening to music, I really listened to everything, anything and everything. Um, my drumming instructor was a very big Led Zeppelin fan. 
So when I was sure. learning, when I was learning from him, I was getting, he was giving me sheet music from Led, Led Zeppelin and I was playing along to those songs. So I have a very big connection with, with kind of like the heavier rock scene, but I'm also really into hip hop. I'll listen to really anything if it sounds good. Um, so I, I have a question for you really quick yeah, about yeah. the drumming thing, because my, my daughter who's in high school is dating a drummer right now. So really? Oh no. I know. So, I, I mean, it's, you know, you're saying, Oh no, Gio, and that's not making me feel very, no, no, very, no, no. Very, it's, it's very completely, fine. Right now. completely. Fine. Is it? I don't know. No, if it, yeah, is, it's, my, it, it is. It's good. I mean, but my wife also, she, uh, she dated percussion majors in college too. So I'm sensing a pattern here with, with women in my family and drummers. So <laughs> I don't know why is that, you know, if you can explain to me, cause I, I was in a band and drummers were always kind of like that, the people that you just, you know, were, you had to manage them because they were always in their own world trying to do their own thing. And while they were essential to everything that was going on, they were always kind of odd. Well, that I, think be accurate? I think that as like a drummer, you have to, you're, you're, ba you're basically giving backup to the rest of the band. Uh, not to say that it's a bad thing, but I mean, for example, when I played in college, when I had these friends that played, uh, they were, there was a guitarist and there was a bassist and the, both of them could play guitar and bass interchangeably, but they couldn't, they weren't drummers. So that's where I kind of was able to step in and, and help out with that. But, um, I think that, as a drummer, you kind of have this different way of looking at music. Um, I mean, every time that I hear a song, I'm kind of tapping away at it. And, and a lot of my friends are like, Oh, what are you doing? But I'm, I, I, I kind of always will have to keep a beat in my head. Um, so everything is very kind of concise and, and, and punctuated as a drummer. It's interesting because it would seem then, and I didn't know that about you when you were my student, but it's it's it seems then that a lot of the the sports highlights have that kind of driving force behind it. It's not as as I'm trying to think about it now. It's not as much the keyboards or the guitar riff, but it is this kind of this element which is pushing force forward. Well, yeah, I mean the 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 drummers essentially at that point, especially with highlight music, they're the ones that are keeping time. And I mean, I think that uh, I do think that the guitar is a big part of it too like the guitar riffs are kind of what we look for because really at the end of the day when when sports highlights are playing you you do hear the, that's what you're hearing is the guitar because a lot of the times that you have uh that are announcers and 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 commentators that are speaking to all this footage you the music kind of gets drowned out and to be honest with you when i took this internship i i really didn't know that there was a job for what i was doing and sure. Um, now I can't look at, uh, a piece of like footage or a movie or a TV show and, and, and not hear the music that, that gets played or even sports packages. Like even when I watch the NFL now or, or, or any sporting event, I'll kind of listen for the music that they chose. And I'm like, oh, it's interesting that they picked that kind of music and, and stuff like that. The most bizarre example of that I saw was, I don't know if you've ever watched, um, professional fishing, bass fishing on TV. Oh, here and there. Yeah. Well, one time I was watching it because, I mean, and of course, I'm going to watch Bass Pro Fisherman because oh, it just course. sounds amazing. Yeah. And the entire time that they were out there in the serene lake fishing and trying to catch, I guess, bass, that's the name, Bass Pro Fisherman. Yeah, it yeah. was this heavy metal guitar riff that was trying oh. to, it felt like, it generate, make up for the lack of excitement in the actual footage by creating this auditory stimulus, which nevertheless made you feel a sense of urgency 
behind it. And it just seems like a oh, really yeah. strange connection between bass fishing and, you know, Eddie Van Halen. It wasn't that because that would have right, license. Right. But it was something like I have like like you know really fast like you know fretboard you know fingering guitar lick kind of thing. Oh, that's actually pretty awesome. Um, yeah, I mean it, it really does play a great part in kind of the mood to be set in uh in in any kind of program. I mean I've seen I've seen I don't know if you've seen like on sometimes on YouTube you'll see people that'll cut their own uh, trailers to movies, and I've seen like say toy story gets cut as like a horror film and they sure. just on just on the music alone you'll you'll kind of think like oh that's a whole different movie now it's not it's not anywhere near the original concept so it's really cool to kind of see how music can aid that and kind of put it into a different direction so getting back to my daughter you don't have any advice about what what I should do with this drummer situation that I'm dealing um with. I would talk to him see if you could jam with him you said you were in a band yeah, I don't know that I, I actually want to talk to him, to tell you the truth. <laughs> I mean, because, is he, is, have you have you spoken to him at all? Is he a good guy? Uh, I've spoken to him sparingly because I'm the dad and yeah, my, my daughter's a freshman in high school and yeah. he's a freshman boy in high school and having been a freshman boy in high school, <laughs> I, I don't know that I really want to have any substantive uh, conversations with him whatsoever. I, 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 music, I think music is a great place to start. If he's a drummer. Well, my daughter, well, my daughter does play guitar. She's in jazz band. So, oh, really? That's awesome. Yeah, you know it, it is, and so like they're in band together, and it's cute and everything. And it it is interesting to think about how, you know, music. And you talked about growing up with music, music as this foundational experience and expression, which then, as we're as we're talking about it, can be directed in any number of ways and and how really music does shape the experiences that we have, like with toy story or like with bass pro fishing or with yeah. the sports highlights. Oh yeah, no, a hundred percent. I mean, I think that uh, it, it really does make a difference. It, I don't know if you're familiar with grocery stores. I know you are cause you've, you're, you're a human being <laughs> who's gone shopping, but even, even there, the extent to which I don't know if you're familiar with this research in service sciences, how they'll change the music at the grocery store based upon the types of demographics of the people who are coming in at that time of day. Oh, really? I, I was not aware of that. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Oh, this is why you got to come back to school and study some more. Yeah, seriously. Yeah, it, it, <laughs> it is this idea that people who come like on a Monday during the day are like this, you know, might be older adults. And so you play this kind of music versus in the evening when people are coming home from work, you'll play a different kind of music. And it's a way to connect I mean, everything about a grocery store is there to try to compel you to consume more. It's like a, right, exactly. it, the only thing, the only thing more sophisticated in that way than grocery stores are probably casinos. Oh yeah. Which also, no, by the way, all, all the, all the tones you hear are like happy tones. And so do you, when you're doing the music, like with casino slot machines, they're programmed to elicit certain emotions. Do you all think in that level of granularity that minor chords evoke sadness or major chords evoke happiness or these kinds of notes are for this kind of thing? Uh, I mean, it's definitely there. I mean, when I was, so when I was at CBS, they'd be like, yeah, we're looking, uh, we had a whole section of music that was say for obituaries and say if like a sportscaster oh, or, or a player passed away, we would have a little piece for them. And you are looking for that kind of sadder, sadder piece. 
And what would be like a like what is a sad piece of music? Like what comes to mind? We think about like sad music for a, what would be like a good obituary piece of music for somebody? Uh, I mean, usually I'd start with piano. Like you want something with piano. Sure. Like you, said, you want minor chords. You want something a little slower playing. Uh, <coughs> oh, excuse me. Um, maybe you want. Um, I don't know. Uh, you'd want something that kind of isn't strict? too driving. It's very, it's very strict. Yeah. It's not kind of not on the jazz side. That's it's, it's going in, in a lot of different directions, but something that is kind of just very mellow and, and is uh, direct the whole way through. So do we want to go heavy strings with that? Or is there a risk of overplaying the emotion too much or being too sentimental? Uh, if you start to add too much to that, or is there like this safe zone where you like, this is where we want the, the viewer to be. We want them to be sad, but we don't want them to be depressed. Uh, I think that you could definitely add strings. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't see anything okay. wrong with that, but maybe like some longer notes, not anything that's like very uh, like punchy and uh, just something that kind of really conveys the message. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie called I'm going to get you sucker. Are you familiar with this movie at all? Uh, I'm not. No, you should check it out. It's your homework. It's by uh, the weigh-ins brothers. Okay. Okay. And it's an early, it's a movie from the like 1990s. That's a, a parody of the, the black exploitation movies that were in the seventies. And the reason I bring it up is some of the major central characters in the movie, they have to have theme music behind them. So like the main protagonist at the end of the movie, his theme music that he did, that is actually literally the person who's doing the music is uh, KRS one. Who's a famous oh, wow. rapper. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. So KRS, see how I'm dropping this on you. So KRS one is rapping with him as he's walking behind the main character. And I just, I bring that up to talk about the idea of theme music and what, music goes with what characters in the movie and how that builds for the, for the viewer oh, that yeah. that sense of character builds out the character. Cause now the music connects with what the persona is. Right. Right. Oh, of course. Um, and and no, is that ahead. something that you think about with like Tom Brady, you know, I don't know if you're a Jets fan or a Giants fan, but we want to put this music with Tom Brady. Cause he's this kind of player or that, you know, this kind of music with this kind of player. Um, yeah, I think that we would do that. So like, for example, we did a, a piece on with Julian Edelman and uh, we wanted to, it was kind of just like following him around. He's from LA. So we wanted to kind of have that LA feel. So we would have a lot more mellow music. We ended up choosing a 21 pilot song uh, <laughs> called Pride that was like very mellow. It was like, I mean, the whole piece was him on his skateboard, like riding through Boston and, and all sure. that stuff. So it was, um, we, you definitely try to, curtail that to whichever like the player or a lot of the times we would um they were a lot the producers really like to have music from the city of the game that we were playing out of so i would have new york bands i would get la bands i would get la rappers i would do um people from atlanta when we were doing atlanta uh, uh when we were playing in georgia so like really anything that will have the listener be like oh i i know that song i know where that band is from like it's cool that they're kind of basing it on the city. So this is where we always get the dropkick Murphys for anything Boston. Oh, that's always recommended for, for anything. <laughs> Boston. Any Pats game. I think that uh, it's inevitable that it's going to get played going. Yeah. You got to have shipping out to Boston. 
Yeah. I mean, and it's just like the song itself too, like it, it kind of embodies everything that we talked about is that it's very driving. It's, it's like a perfect song to play for a bumper. It's recognizable. Um, it kind of has the, uh, um, like that bass drum that's kind of playing in, in, in the back of your head. And it, it really kind of brings it home for, for Pat's games in general. I'm kind of surprised that you only had a few people in CBS Sports who were doing this job because it's such a central, integral part of the viewing experience. I would I would have guessed that there would have been more people than just a small team. Well, I think that music – there was a music department for um, CBS proper that kind of had all of the um, the shows and things like that. But for sports, it really was – like when I when I was interning there, I was working through the summer and it was just me and, and my boss, one other guy – and then when I a couple of years later when I ended up getting the full time position there again it was just me and him and we would kind of uh, we took each sport so he was handling the NFL while I was doing college football and uh, college basketball and we would then kind of I think I took golf for most of the time that I was there uh, and then the other kind of one off sports that we had I think we had surfing a little while we would do tennis um, and it was I mean it would, whenever the sport, whenever that season would come, we would sit back down and be like, all right, let's get a whole new package together of all these songs that we want to showcase for the, for the events. So your friends must've really hated you when you described what your job was, was to listen to music and watch sports and put the two together. Oh yeah. They, they definitely, I mean, especially coming from Bentley where everyone was working in like the finance or accounting departments of all these companies where I was just I, I told them I, I essentially made Spotify playlists as my job. And, and and honestly, as you were going about, you know, your everyday life, is that something that you were really, you know, consciously engaging where you'd hear a song, you'd be writing notes like this might be a good song or that might be a good song or this might be a good song. Were you constantly curating your own list, either in your head or on your phone? Oh, yeah. I mean, once, once, the job, once the job started, uh, I mean, that's really all you can think about is that anytime that you hear a song that is kind of more upbeat and it's on the rock side, I'll be like, Oh, that's great for a highlight. And I would kind of tuck it away and, and kind of have that in my back pocket. If, if somebody was looking for music or if there's like a really good hip hop beat and you're like, Oh, that, that'd be great for one of the basketball packages. Then you kind of put it in that folder. And I mean, it never really stops. Like even now I don't really do sports. I, I, I do more uh, scripted TV shows and I'm still emailing my boss. Like, Hey, here's some music that I found. My old boss, I'll, I'll email her and be like, hey, no kidding. I found. Yeah, yeah. Just because it sounds great. I mean, now CBS and Viacom are one company, so it's essentially the same thing. But I'll still send her music like, hey, I just checked this out. Like, if you guys want to put this on air. I know. I remember you're on the soccer team here at Bentley. That yes. much I remember. Are you are you a golfer? Uh, I do golf occasionally. I'm not that good, but I will golf uh, a couple times this summer or whenever I can. And are you a surfer at all? No, no. I snowboard though. Right. You snowboard. So I'm, I'm, yeah. the reason I ask those questions is to what extent in your position to do the job well, did you have to know like the culture? You, I mean, you, I remember, I, I believe I remember you're in the sociology of sports class, right? Yes. And I, I was, think yeah. that that's how we got into this internship that you took to me for sociology of sports. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so like the, each sport has a unique culture. So how much did you really have to get into or talk to golfers or, or talk to people or, or do some research on the sport and the, the culture of the sport itself to tap into music that would make sense to the viewer? Um, I think that uh, when I first started, 
I all I did was just watch footage of previous games, uh, previous highlight packages, graphic packages, all that stuff. And it was not so much. I mean, obviously, yeah, like you're watching the sport and you're uh, kind of seeing how it plays out. But at the end of the day, like once you start, once I started getting like a handle of the kind of music that was getting used and the kind of music that I thought would fit for like the hard hittingness of the bat of football or say like the improvisation of like a basketball game, you kind of get into this rhythm. And once you once you kind of, I guess, crack the code, you it, it becomes a lot easier to kind of pick and choose music that you would think would be good for that sport. And one of the previous podcasts that we did uh, was with a fraternity brother of mine uh, named Aaron Rush, who is the vice president of operations at the Golden One Center in Sacramento. Oh, cool. And so, yeah, I know it's a pretty great job. And so we were talking about the fan experience. And one of the things I believe a few things related to music, one was putting on music at the venues, but another thing is the fact that like in NBA games now, I think I've haven't gone to one in a long time that music is constantly being played during the play itself. And music was always one of those things like at a baseball game or at a hockey game where you might get music in between plays, but now it seems in some sports that music is, or some auditory stimulus is being projected throughout the entire event. Huh. And I and I don't know how I feel about that. Quite frankly, I don't know yeah, how you feel about it. I don't know how I feel about that either. I mean, I think I I see why some people could definitely get into it, but at the same time, like it could get kind of distracting. I feel. I I would agree because you're pretty close to Madison Square Garden. So if you went down to the garden and you're there to watch a basketball game, I mean, to what extent in our you know the generation today, you know, of even after your generation. Are they in need of this constant stimuli as a result of the world they've grown up in, right? So there's all, you know, if like my kids are on their tablets or on their computer, it's a steady stream of stuff that's being thrown at them and there's no quiet moments. And so I do wonder, and I don't know what your thoughts on this are as a person in this music space, that younger generations are in constant need of, of all forms of stimulus, even auditory, because it's just the world that they've, that they're experiencing all the time. Uh, I mean, I think that it might help in some cases, but I also think that like sometimes the best music played is no music at all. Like the lack of music can be just as effective as playing a track. Um, And I think, I mean, maybe sporting events might be different, but I mean, if you're there to watch the sport, then I think that any kind of music that gets played while it's occurring might be a little too much. It might be like over overstimulating them. Um, I mean, it's, it's a little different, I think, say with soccer, soccer in the stadiums. I mean, you got people chanting and singing songs the whole time. There's never usually music being played into the stadium unless it's beforehand or it's like right after the, the whistle's blown as kind of like coming in and leaving. But, um, for say, I know, like, like, like you said, like a basketball game, they've got music playing while they're doing subs. And then as soon as the play starts, like it's over. Like you're, you're focused in on that, on that one moment that's being played right there. So I don't know if it'll, I don't know if it would be too much for somebody, if you're going to the stadium and there's just music playing at you at, at, at every time. I would be too much for me, but I'm old. Right. I mean, so and I <laughs> guess I, I'm, I don't know that I'm the demographic. I don't know that I count. And one of the things you mentioned about the soccer games, which always makes me think is why 
in, in American sports, like in football or hockey or anything, we don't have team songs. It's such a, a vibrant part of the sports culture in other parts of the world where the fans will sing songs. The only thing fans really do in American sports together is maybe the wave. Yeah. But that's about it. And so I, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't know if you have an answer to this. If you do great. But I always uh, wonder about why is it, why don't we have that thing as part of our sports culture, even though that's you know, the music is such a part of the viewing experience. I don't know. That's a, that's a very good question that I don't even know if I have the answer to. Um, I think maybe it's like particularly European soccer was you kind of like the, the way that the fan experience goes is that you kind of go to the bar and everyone drinks at the bar. And then when it's ready time for game time, everyone leaves and they're singing the whole way from the bar all the way to the stadium. And I think it just kind of carries into the stadium itself. And I don't know if we have that kind of culture with American sports. I mean, we do the tailgating thing and it is interesting yeah, to I, see that. I think I also, I also do think that it's like we lack our sports teams, even though we might feel strongly about them, they're not tribal to the same level as they are. Oh, in no, your at all. Yeah. I think maybe Oakland Raider fans can, can relate a little bit, but sure. Um, I mean the level of like commitment and loyalty to, to, to sport, to soccer fans, uh, particularly like outside of the U S is, is insane. So with, with, you know, if you think about, you know, sports in Europe is church, which in many ways it is because you have the religious affiliation and, t- and local ties with the teams. It, the songs are almost like the hymnals, the, the soccer songs. Yeah. The football yeah, you would say that. yeah. And where, where for us, it's just another aspect of the entertainment. Right. That's correct. I'm just wondering out loud as, as we talk about it, because I, I think, you know, people, you know, music and sports or music in life, like going to the grocery store, it's such a taken for granted element of everyday life that it almost becomes invisible until it's absent. Right. I mean, yeah, I, like, I, like I said before, like I, I, when I first started working at CBS, I didn't think, I, I mean, you don't even, you don't even really realize that there's music playing under those packages until you, you work in it and you realize, Oh, somebody actually had to pick that song for it to be played or people. I mean, there's people that make their entire livelihood, just making music for background in television shows um and and specifically sports packages i mean I, we worked with we worked with people that their entire livelihood was made on sending music to us and for that music to be played under a golf uh a golf game or under a uh, a highlights package for football yeah and this it actually gets us i mean you, you spent three years and looking at your linkedin profile you spent three years as music coordinator for cbs sports and then you moved into this role of coordinator of music and media licensing for Viacom, which Viacom CBS. So yeah. what, what's that shift? Like what does a coordinator of music and media licensing actually do? So in, so at CBS, I was like, I, like I said, when I started, it was, I was much more of a music curator than I was um, kind of on the legal side of music. And now that I'm switching over, well, it's, it's, it's kind of two part because I, I switched over and I'm no longer in sports. Now I'm doing kind of long form scripted content for specifically comedy central. I work with comedy central and oh, no kidding. that's yeah, awesome. It's, it's, it's great, man. It's, it's hilarious. Um, and I work a lot closer with legal now than I did when I was at CBS and I don't just handle music anymore. I do all forms of media licensing. So whether it be music, 
uh, footage, photos. I mean, if you're wearing a t-shirt, basically anything that we don't own that we want to put on camera is what I have to go out and get clearance for. And how do you know, maybe it's a dumb question, but it's my job to ask dumb questions. How do you know if, it, if you own it or not since Viacom CBS, I think owns everything? Uh, well, they do own a lot. They do definitely own a lot. Um, well, I mean, so how a show will typically work is that we'll say like a show gets greenlit and then it starts going into the production phase. I mean, we'll get, I'll get like, the, I'll get scripts, like rough scripts right off the bat. And I'll have to sit there, read through the script. Sometimes it calls out a specific brand. Sometimes it doesn't. Um, and I'll have to sit there and make notes on the script. Sometimes they call out a song that they want to use. And I'll have to sit there and be like, okay, well, if we want to show this, we want to show this Coke bottle, then we have to get clearance. Or if not, then we have to essentially Greek it, which means we have to obscure it so that we don't see the the labeling. Um anything from books to paintings. Uh, and that's why I, I really work hand in hand with the set designers and the art coordinators because they're the ones that are really building the set. And I have to, they'll, I mean, I'll get emails at all times of the night of them being like, Hey, we just, uh, we just got all these paintings from this artist. Is it okay if we use it? I'm like, well, did you guys sign a release? Like we have to get a release to this guy, make sure that he's okay with us showing it and the terms and the, um, the rights that we have so that we can then, as long as we have a signed piece of paper, then okay, it's good to go. We can show it. And I was reading, I did find online some of the job descriptions for, you know, the coordinator of music and media licensing at Viacom. And, and along with being very confusing for, from a, from a layperson standpoint, what the job is, it also seemed very legal and less, um, less actually look from what I was reading, it looked less creative than what you're telling me, which is which is great because it's your, your former job was so creative. I was wondering if there was a drop-off in the opportunity to be creative or it was more just making sure that Viacom CBS wasn't sued. Uh, a little bit at first, I think that there was a drop-off in the creative aspect of it. Um, I think I, I really wanted to kind of get into the business behind the music clearance and, and work more on the legal side of it. But now we actually, my, my specific team is kind of pushing more towards being a hybrid role between music clearance and um, creative music integration. So we actually will go in and uh, do uh, song selections for them and, and kind of help them to pick music. So there is a, definitely a creative aspect, but you're right. It is much more on the legal side. I mean, I, I'm all day I'm reading contracts and, and different licenses and things like that. What's like really good music to read contracts to? Um, well, the major labels definitely have some pretty airtight contracts that we got to go back and forth on. Uh, actually, I take that back. Major The major contracts we actually have a pretty decent relationship with. So that contract doesn't really change. It's like the indie guys of like some random band who signed to this indie label in like Hawaii somewhere and they have their own contract that they like to use, or maybe they, we give them a contract and they redline the whole thing. And they're like, well, I don't think that you should use it for this, this, and this. And, and we have to kind of basically kind of try and negotiate with them to make sure that we can have the rights that we need. Because when we, when for, specifically for comedy in the role that I'm in, we clear for all media, which is, uh, it could be seen anywhere, like on a television, on a, on a tablet, on your, on your computer, uh, we clear for worldwide rights, which means that we can clear and the, the episode could air anywhere in the world. And then we also have to clear in perpetuity, meaning that we can air this episode a hundred years into the future 
and we'll still be okay because we got the license. It, it, it does. I mean, we, we, as you're talking about it, it is interesting because of the, you can't predict who's going to watch it where on what and when. Right. Exactly. So and sometimes, sometimes we'll, uh, so when I first started at, at, at Viacom, I was actually working in the digital uh, department, in the digital space, uh, specifically with BET. And we would only clear for online and wireless. And maybe we put it up for a, a three-year term um, so that the it, it's much easier to get something taken down from the internet than it is from like a linear platform. Uh, so say for, for comedy, now we have to clear the broadest rights as possible so that we can have it everywhere. And what kind of shows on Comedy Central are you working on? Is it all of them? I mean, I, I, I will admit that I don't watch as much Comedy Central as I used to, so I don't know what's on there. So we what are the kind of shows you're yeah, engaged I mean, with? Really working on, on – on, I mean, I, I we have a team of – right now we have a team of three people that just handle comedy. And, I mean, I think I've touched every show that's on Comedy Central right now. Uh, so, like, whether it's The Daily Show – uh, I'm working on a new nightly show with David Spade. I was uh, just going to ask about that because I heard him on Howard Stern for like an hour talking about Lights Out with David Spade. Yeah, yeah. I'm like the main clearance contact for that. What? Get out of yeah. town. So yeah. so are you sitting there talking with David Spade about music concepts and things I like that? I haven't actually spoken with him. No, I haven't spoken with him. I want to. It'd be awesome if I could if I can get on the phone with him and talk to him about it. But no, I, I usually deal with his production team because um, they're the ones that are coming to me being like, hey, here are the topics that we want to discuss for today. Here are all the photos that we want to show. Here's some articles. Like how can we go about doing this in like the least expensive way? And he's West coast based. No, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So it makes the show a little tricky uh, for not, I mean, it's not terrible for me because by the time I'm already at work when they start their kind of, they have a meeting in the, in the beginning of the day where they kind of go over all their topics. And, and by then it's like, for me, it's noon because they're in at 9am. And it, it actually helps with getting uh, the ball rolling on my end because I'm already like kind of in the thick of work and I can help them out right away. Um, and they tape they tape around 545 uh, in New York. So it's about 245 out in L.A. So by the time like by the time they're taping, my job is kind of done at that point uh, because they like record at 545 and then the show airs at 1130 p.m. Gotcha. And, and were you, I mean, I don't want you to say, no, you didn't like him because you know, you're working with him. but how big of a fan of you were of David Spade before you had, you know, for instance, with him, you started working with his show. Oh, I mean, I was definitely a fan. I think I, I, I loved all of his movies. I mean, he's great with, um, he was great on SNL. It was, it was really cool to see that he was going to be on the show. I think he's a very, very good interviewer. And I think that, um, he's been in Hollywood for so long that he's got a lot of pull. So we actually end up getting a lot of really good guests on the show. Um, he, I mean, he's got all the SNL guys will come down and, and do uh, a show with him. We had Adam Sandler, like right after he did Uncut Gems, which was really cool. Uh, and I think it was two weeks ago, maybe last week that we had Jim Carrey. So that was really right. Cool yeah, I think, yeah. I, you know, I was listening to the Howard Stern interview, which is really fascinating because, you know, his career, Spade's career has, you know, gone through various arcs and, yes. and, and I got the sense and I just, as a general question, when you have any major personality there, you're trying to create this certain aesthetic with them, this certain image 
that is achieved through the integration of both the physical environment, but also the, the music environment? And how much do you have to kind of have a sense of where they're at and where they're tr- who they are as an artist to be able to intersect the musical pieces with that overall thing that they're creating? Oh, I mean, it's definitely important. I think that, um, so for example, David Spade is like a very big, like 80, 70s and 80s rock fan. So, okay, I did not know that. He, How did you find that out, by the way? I found that out because that's the type of music that he was asking if we could play on the show. Oh, wow. Uh, so he would, not not him per se, but I mean, his people would come to me and say, hey, can we use like these couple songs that we're trying to look into? And I mean, it was always like these huge rock songs. Like I think he wanted, he wanted ACDC at some point. He wanted um, like Tom Petty. And I mean, these guys particularly with music clearance, it's very expensive with the, with those guys. Cause those songs I are see. iconic. So I think a lot of the times the music tends to get out of budget. Um, but uh, I definitely did know that that was the kind of sound that he was looking for. So it helps with music kind of selection in the future. So you might come back to them and say, well, we can't get you Tom Petty, American girl. I can get you Ario speed Dragon riding the storm out. Right. Exactly. So we can kind of, we can come back with, with, with alternatives that are definitely within his price range. And is that's amazing to me because I was just kind of thrown out there, Ario Speed Dragon riding the storm out. But it is kind of like, I mean, great band, but yeah. it is that kind of like step down or two. And so it, and when you're kind of looking at the musical options, is there this kind of book that exists where you can go in and see what the price points of licensing the music are and like which uh, tiers of artists are at? Or is it just a sense you get based on their popularity? There is and there isn't. I mean, I think it's kind of like an unspoken rule um, or an unspoken kind of list that that that, that exists. Um, I think it kind of gets a little hard to tell with uh, with like these the older bands because I mean sometimes there'll be somebody that you didn't know had like such a big impact in their time, and then by the time you get the quote back, I mean it's like. Fifty thousand dollars, a hundred thousand dollars for for a piece of music, and well, uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. You're you're very young, so like that that era of music might be lost on you. Yeah. I would know. I, I'd be able to say, well, yeah, of course, that was that that was like the, that was all the rage in 1978. <laughs> That's very true. Um, but uh, I mean, I think like say like if you want a Tom Petty song, like it's going to cost you a lot of money. If you want Rolling Stones, it's going to cost you. But if you want, say. I don't know uh, who's a good one. That's like not super expensive. Um, like, yeah. Who's, who's a cheap artist? Tell us. Who's, <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want to go and like, start, like airing everybody's laundry out there, but um, no, there's definitely artists out. I mean, and again, it all comes down to the use too. And, and the rights play a very big role in, in how much something is going to cost because it's all about how many eyes are going to be on it. Um, and a lot of the times, to be honest with you, like when we go out to people, they see Viacom, they see Comedy Central, and they're like, oh, they got big pockets. We can kind of up the price and try and uh, strong arm them for money. You know what I mean? Well, it also makes me think, so like, let's take a band, since we're in the 80s era, it's kind of like late 70s, Hollow Notes. Okay? okay. Tremendous band, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But I, you know, then we had like a live at um, Daryl's house come on first YouTube. And then later on, it was on television. So Hollow Notes kind of had this resurgence in many ways. And so will you see the price point fluctuate based on 
the resurgence of an artist or of a piece of music because of it, they hit a certain point in pop culture where oh, people yeah. start listening you, you to it again? You definitely will see that. I mean, artists will, the price point will definitely fluctuate there. Their willingness to approve will fluctuate. Um, and their kind of just willingness to cooperate with the creative will definitely fluctuate. I mean, I know artists that there's some artists out there that if you go out to the, if you go out to their publisher or their label and you say, Hey, we're looking to do this. I mean, you'll, you'll get a denial right away. Or maybe you'll have an artist that has to see, see the script of every show that music is going to be his music or her music is going to be played on that show. Uh, but then, I mean, I guess as times turn and, and, and they're not as popular, they're more willing to be like, you know what? I could use a couple of extra thousand dollars. Like, yeah, go ahead. Use it however you want to use it. Yeah. I, I just started thinking for some reason, I started thinking about this band called the Ramones and I don't know if you, if you're familiar with the Ramones or not. Yeah. Well, they, they had a singing drummer. So there you go. Yeah. And, you know, talking in your sleep was like a huge hit at the time, but it might've been their only hit. And so for like a band like that, even though it was really at a certain, you know, the, the song of the summer, or it was like that, that song that was really big in the 1980s, you know, when I was in high school, right. Right. You know, it might be like exposure now for them where people may not remember who, not, not the Ramones, but um, I'm trying to think of, a, of, a, of the band. God, who did I'm talking in your sleep? Romantics, the Romantics. Romantics yeah. There we go. Uh, not the Ramones, the Romantics. Uh, I was close. And so, you know, do you have a situation where no one's heard of them for a while because they're the romantics, but we let, you know, we'll use your song and it might give you a greater bump. So it's a cheaper price point to actually get their licensing than for, for a band that everyone knows. Oh yeah, no, it's definitely, that, that, that could definitely happen. I mean, uh, it, it, and the same thing goes for say somebody who's like up and coming and is really trying to catch their break. They're more willing to be like, Hey, use my song, use it however you want. Um, here's all the, the stems and here's all the, the instrumental versions and, and kind of just use it at your, at your leisure. Um, because it is at the end of the day, it is exposure. And, and if the song really plays well with a particular scene and it really catches an audience, like it really does kind of resurge the music in a way. It does remind. I don't know if you ever saw the movie Reality Bites, uh, with um, you know oh, uh, Christian Slater and Winona Ryder and a bunch of Ben Stiller was in it. Yep, yep. And it kind of brought back you know the knack, my Sharona, because that was again a huge song. Yeah, and what? it's time. There's you the know Ram- kind of that's the Ramones for you. What's that? I said that's the Ramones song, isn't it? No, it's it's actually the knack. Get the knack from the oh, album. Get right. the knack. Yeah, yeah. My yeah, because okay. Here's the connection. You want a little bit of trivia? Yes. Okay, here we go. So did you ever hear of a guy by the name of uh, Jack Kevorkian, Dr. Jack Kevorkian? Yes. So Jack Kevorkian was the person who was this assisted suicide euthanasia doctor, southeastern Michigan. He was represented by a guy named Jeffrey Figer. Jeffrey Figer was a lawyer in southeastern Michigan who represented Jack Kevorkian. Jeffrey Figer's brother was the singer in the band The Knack who recorded My Sharona. Oh my God, that's incredible. So I don't know why why that's important for anybody, but no. for anybody listening, nice now one. you have that little bit of, of music history. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I and actually on the Howard Stern show recently, he did a whole rap on, you know, the greatest uh, greatest TV theme songs ever recorded. Oh, what did he have at the top? 
Actually, here at the top, the woman just died. It was the theme song from the Jeffersons, Moving On Up. Oh, yeah, it's good. Because the woman who, rec- who wrote, co-wrote and recorded that song was one of the, the stars in the TV show Good Times. Oh, I didn't know that. Right? And so it really did become about like how we associate music and theme songs and how they you know, really became emblematic of the TV shows themselves. And so... I agree with you. I said they 100% do. And so is that part of when you're thinking about like a theme song for either, you know, David Spade or Bill Burr or The Daily Show, is that more the we're going to license a person to write it because of the cost or are we going to go for a piece of music that already exists because the artist so closely identifies with it? So with at Comedy Central, our biggest policy is that we have to own the theme song. So what we'll do is we'll hire a composer to come in and write the theme song for us because we want to be able to promote this show a million times over like all platforms. And we want to be able to use this song however we want. Um, I think that if in in the event that we don't own the song, it gets weird because um, we really, we, we need perpetual rights to be able to, to promote this song any way that we want. And sometimes uh, publishers or labels won't want to grant us those rights. And it makes it a lot harder for us to be able to showcase our show without having complete ownership of the theme music. Um, That's pretty for wild. A, yeah, no, it is. It's, it, it definitely is wild. And I think that, uh, say for like a promo campaign, like say, for example, David Spade was starting up like six months ago, whenever, however long it started to go. And we want to license a song from REO Speedwagon for eight weeks and we want that to play on all platforms, then that's something that we would do. And then we would still have the theme in our back pocket whenever we wanted to just promote the show any other time. And do you, do you try to think about what song goes with what demographic you're aiming for? Uh, yeah, I think we definitely will. I mean, there's different shows that, that, that even on comedy that have different demographics and, and the music really has to reflect that. Uh, I think that while... David Spade really does like all that older rock music. I'm not sure if his, the demographic for the show is kind of geared towards that because it's a, it's a show that's, so the the whole basis of the show is that it airs at 1130 at 11 o'clock is when the daily show comes on. And at 11 o'clock, that's the half hour that we do right there. That's all politics. It's all kind of political news. And David made a really big, push to make this show not about politics it's all topical it's all about pop culture it's all about what's happening in the world that's not political and i think that the demographic for the show it's a lot more social media friendly it's a lot more like techie so i think that the demographic is actually a lot lower than say david's age that makes sense no it does make sense and it's it's following some big shoes because in that time slot was the colbert rapport yeah which and that's in, you know a monster, yeah. And that that slot is actually kind of notorious as a slot that never has been able to get filled and stay filled. Um, that eleven thirty slot on comedy because I mean it was Colbert Report and then I think it was At Midnight and and there was a bunch of other shows that were there and I mean yeah they ran for a couple seasons but ultimately they they didn't end up lasting. I mean Colbert was different because he ended up going to, to CBS. But um, I think that it is tough to be in that slot. Um, 
But, I mean, Spade's doing pretty well. I mean, the ratings are pretty good, so we'll see how long it goes. I think today was, today was episode 98, so we're almost at 100 episodes. And why is that important, 100 episodes, just be, other than being like a round number? Does something magical happen at 100? Uh, no, I think it's just like a nice milestone to have as a show. Um, and then once we get to that, we can start maybe looking back into the archives of the episodes that we did, the first 100, and maybe pulling pieces that we liked and doing kind of episodes that are best of the first 100, maybe pulling a lot of the bits that he did or the 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 uh, field pieces that he did and making our own episodes based off of that, based off of past episodes. And with a guy like Spade, and now we're talking about him, but why not? I mean, we could be talking about anybody else, but because his career has undergone so many different generations, whether it's the SNL time, which, you know, I remember him on SNL versus, you know, the movies that he did, you know, with right, right. Chris Farley or, or whether it's like even his standup work, where you touch his, where, where you touch his career is got, probably going to be different demographics. And so like how he's thinking about using music to situate into a certain kind of area really is a strategic decision where music becomes a crucial part of that strategy. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it, it really depends on kind of the angle that we're trying to do for the show that day. I mean, we did a field piece where we had dead mouse come on and he's like a, a big DJ and he does a lot of EDM music, but then, I mean, we've done other kind of pieces where we bump out and we're, we're, um, we're bumping out with like this older rock music. I mean, he, he was actually, he's a really big REO Speedwagon fan. And a lot of the songs that he tries to get are, are REO Speedwagon. See, um, riding the storm out. Yeah, Nailed so it. He loves it. And um, whether or not we actually can do that, I mean, he he also does this, uh, he has this uh, piece, the recurring piece, um, where he is interviewing for a house band. And, and he's brought on, again, He's brought he brought on Dead Mouse. He brought on Rascal Flat. He did Mumf- Mumford and Sons as well. So he'll kind of pick and choose. I mean, cause you're right. The demographic for the show is really big because it's really anybody that's got a smartphone and is seeing what's going on in the world. So he's trying to kind of broaden it to everybody. I mean, Ario Speedwagon is a tough choice because I mean, are you going to go with keep on loving you? I don't know that you want to go with can't fight this feeling. That might be a little bit too, too easy listening. And so yeah, it does. I, mean, I think that uh, you do definitely have to pick and choose. I mean, I think that, um, Sometimes they'll come to come to us with with song choices and we'll be like, oh, I don't really see that for the for the bit. And I might come back with them and be like, hey, that's great. But like, have you looked at these options? And I'll give them like three or four other options that maybe in the back of my mind, I know is easier to clear. And it kind of saves me some work on my end and uh, also kind of helps with the musical choice as well. So, so part it, of the job then is negotiating with them what might be more least you know more affordable, not less expensive, but more affordable, easier to manage, and therefore you can get it more quickly, and it's more of a sure thing versus having to go back and forth and negotiate. Right, exactly. Um, I mean, for example, I'm I'm working on a pilot for this show right now, which I don't know if I could really talk about because it's kind of still under. Sure. But we're well. No one's going to listen to this anyway. So I mean, if you talked about it. <laughs> Um, but, uh, we're trying to get a specific song and it's playing during a scene that's a little bit more risque and we're afraid about getting a denial for this specific song. So like right before I came over here, I was on the phone with, uh, Sony with Sony music (laughs) and we were talking about, uh, I basically pitched them the script and I pitched them the concept and let them know the song that we were looking at. And she's like, the, the woman was like, Hey, like, 
yeah, it might be tough to clear. We got to go out to the artist for it, but I can let you know. But I can also come back to you with a playlist of songs that I know could probably fit your scene description and that I know will be approved. So like on that end too, it's, it's not just me that's helping out. I mean, it's, it really is a group effort at the end of the day because I'll have publishers and, and labels that will come back to me and say, Hey, like if this doesn't work out, I've got a ton of other songs that can fit that, that I know that we can do a deal with. It really, you know, and this is what I drew out, drew from. I mean, I still do remember your, your directed study back from 2013 because it was, it was mind blowing to me how much goes into something that people just don't even think about. Oh yeah. I mean, music clearance alone is like very, very nuanced um, because again, it all comes down to the, it all comes down to how you're going to use it, how long you're going to use it, how, how the term of the deal is going to be. And then, I mean, it's the approval parties because, so when you, when you clear music, you have to clear, there's two sides of the music that you have to clear. You have to clear the publishing side and you have to clear the master recording. Uh, huh. so publishing end, that's everyone that wrote the song. So say for a Led Zeppelin song, you got five writers, all the, all the band members or four, whoever, however many there were and four, four. Yeah. And, uh, then you got, they're all listed as writers. They all own a certain percent of the song. It's probably 25% each, or maybe, uh, maybe John Paul Jones gets a little bit more because he wrote the song. Right. I'd have like 40% of the song and then it trickles down to the rest of the band members. Um, and then the master side is that's the actual recording of that song. So if you want to license that, if you want that specific, if you want black dog by Led Zeppelin to play, then you have to reach out to the publishers and you have to also reach out to the label who controls the master of that song. Um, there are ways to kind of get around it. So like, say, I was on the show and instead of us playing black dog by Led Zeppelin, they wanted me to sing it. Well, then we're not really using the master recording. We're using my own version of the song. So we only have to pay the publishing side. Gotcha. Yeah. And, and, you know, when I listen to sports radio, for instance, or any radio station, they may play like, well, talk radio, especially they might play, but you know, bumper music, right? So bump and bump out, but they, oh, they're only, they're only playing a certain amount of time. And is there a thing where if you play like only a certain amount of time, you don't have to pay royalties on it? Um, not necessarily. I mean, you really should be paying royalties at, at whenever you play the song, it's like per needle drop, but um, it depends on the, again, on the nature of the show, like say, say it's a music podcast that you're listening to. And they're kind of, there's one that I listen to called dissect where this guy goes through and he will actually like deconstruct music, uh, and kind of talk about it line by line. And in that sense, there is an argument that there is a fair use argument there that he can sit there, deconstruct the lyrics, comment on the song itself, comment on the lyrics and be able to essentially play the song while he's deconstructing it, where he doesn't have to go out for clearance. Wild. Yeah. I know for like uh, this, this podcast, the, the, I you know, we have, you know, music that we use for intro and then some bump in and bump out, but I went to creative commons and right. one of the, yeah. one of, one of the, one of the stipulations of creative commons is I, you know, basically if I'm not making, if I'm not profiting by the song, then I can use the song. And since we're, making no money doing this. I think I'm fairly safe in using the song. Yeah. Yeah. That's see, that's fine. And that's where sometimes I'll have a producer that'll be like, Oh, I want to go to creative commons, but I'm like, well, we're really monetizing on every aspect of the show. So we can't really go there. And 
I mean, we have we have uh, Viacom's got this uh, an internal uh, system of library music where there's there is um, I mean there's production companies all over the country and the world that just make music for television. Not it's not going anywhere else. It's not going on the radio. They make it specifically to be played during scenes in TV. And uh, we have a ton of songs. I mean, we have like over a million tracks that like producers can go in and eat out of. And a lot of the times that they do, some every once in a while, you might have a a producer that's like, oh no, I really like this other library, but we don't have a deal with them. Or they're like, oh, we want to go to Creative Commons. And it's it, it's kind of nuanced because we have to try and look at their agreement, see what parts of their agreement we like, see what parts we don't like, and see if we can actually go ahead and license the song. That's it's it's all amazing, and you know it's it's amazingly complicated, and it's impressive what what you can do with a Bentley degree, because I don't know that when you started this you know professional journey that you this is where you thought you were going to end up. You know, oh no, not at all. I mean, I mean, I was a I was a marketing major at Bentley with the sociology minor. I didn't think I was really going to be working in music at all. And, and what was what was most useful to the to this current job, the marketing major, the sociology minor? Go ahead, tell us. It was the sociology minor. See, there you go. That that was it. And and so like where's like where's Geo going? Like what's the next frontier in music and media licensing in terms of the future of it as we continue to, you know, explore different media channels and, and media work? Whew, that is a very good question. Uh personally, I think I think everything is slowly going to become digital. I mean, you kind of see it now with all these media companies kind of eating each other up. And uh, a lot of companies now are pulling back their content that uh, has been licensed out to other media outlets. And then they're starting their own media platforms. I mean, uh, NBC is starting Peacock. And I think that they're going to slowly pull back all of the shows that they have on, say, Netflix or or Hulu. And they're going to be streaming it themselves. I mean, uh, Disney's done that already. Disney did that. I mean, it was a huge thing. I know that Viacom is is looking in that same direction. Uh, Viacom CBS, we're looking in that same direction to to kind of be a one stop shop for streaming and and be able to get all that content out. I think that in terms of linear programming, like on television, it's it's going to be interesting to see where how it kind of plays out. I think that there are certain channels that still kind of drive viewership. I mean, sports itself. I think that's going to be the biggest seller for for linear content um whether it be the nfl or or soccer games or or any kind of sporting event because you want to sit in front of the tv with a bunch of people and watch the game um exactly i mean it's like one of the last communal experiences in terms of viewing that we still have where now everyone it's like streaming or you know uh you know basically binge watching an episode or series you can't binge watch you know the nfl season right exactly and i think that that's that's where sports is going to kind of be able to stay in its own lane um, while all of this other content is kind of being pushed into one other direction. Well, it sounds, I mean, it really is amazing. And, uh, you know, when I, when we were starting this podcast, you were one of the first names that I came up with as wanting to talk to about the, a unique kind of experience design, because I don't think as we keep saying, even though music is central to our viewing experience, I don't think anybody ever really actively thinks about it in that way. No, not at all. Like I said, I mean, I, I didn't know that there was a job for what I was doing until I had that job. And I think that now, nowadays, like it almost to the annoyance of a lot of my friends and family that 
I'll sit there and I'll watch something and I'll be like, oh, I can't believe that they were able to get this song licensed. Like I've tried to license this song and it didn't work or, or are they actually licensing this content? Like sometimes people don't go out for clearance and I'm like, there's no way that they got clearance for say that shirt or that, that logo or something like that. So it is really like now that's all I see is kind of like the other end of the spectrum. Has it ruined you at all in that uh, kind of way? Yeah. I mean, I don't watch, uh, I don't watch as much football as I did. Cause once you kind of hang out in the audio room and you, you see how it's all made, it gets kind of weird after a while. But, um, Television, I think it definitely has made me pay attention a lot more to the little pieces of it. So, so it sounds, it sounds like, sound like a good ethnographer, noticing all the details. Yeah. Very good. Well, thanks so much, Gio, for chatting with me today about oh, this. It's, so it's great stuff, and, and congratulations on all, all the success on it. Thank you so much. We want to thank Gio LaMonaco of Viacom and my former student for taking some time to talk with us about how music becomes part of our viewing experience. It is easy to get jealous of a job where you get paid to watch sports or watch comedy shows or just watch television in general. It's pretty interesting stuff and it was great to catch up with them and find out how things have been going. Even though it does start to make you feel old when your students are now old enough to have careers. It's not a fun part of the job. We are also happy that you are able to join us once again at the Experience by Design Studios. Let us know how you're listening at feedback at experiencexdesign.com. You can also find all of our past episodes at experiencexdesign.com. You can also find them at the other sites where you get your podcasts, probably the one you're listening to right now. We'd love to hear from you, so make sure you give us feedback of what you like and what you'd like to hear more of. And we also hope you're staying safe and healthy. Thank frontline worker when you get a chance make sure you're practicing patience get in touch with some friends new and old attend a virtual meeting if you need to and get through this however you can we hope it gets better for those of you that are struggling right now we know there's a lot of people struggling with a lot of different things it's definitely not easy and we hope we can make things a little bit easier for a short time through shows like this and we hope to see you again next week at Experience by Design Studios. We'll have more great guests and more great content for you to listen to. Take care, everybody. <laughs>